It's good to be together this morning. In case you uh, are new with us this morning, we've been looking at the life of David. And we last left David holding Saul's crown, if you remember, delivered to him by a deceitful Malachite. Saul and uh, three of his sons have been killed in a battle with the Philistines, and Israel was literally on the run. They were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And I want us to pick up where we last left and look at what David does next. So if you would, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. If you would, begin reading with me in verse 1. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And so David said, Where shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. I want to pause there because I want us to consider what just took place. David is learning to seek God's kingdom first. He's not reacting to the circumstances. Here he is holding Saul's crown and how easy it would have been to say, well, this is it. This is my chance. I take the crown, I assume the throne, and I ask for God's blessing along the way. That's not what he does. He's seeking the Lord's first, and he's asking for his guidance so that he's following where the Lord leads. He's trusting in God more than he trusts himself. God instructs him to go to Hebron. Now, Hebron is about 19 miles southwest of the city of Jerusalem. It's a very significant city from the biblical perspective. Hebron is where Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. Also Isaac and Rebekah. Also Jacob and Leah. It's very interesting to me, and I don't think it's a coincidence, that here God is establishing his kingdom with David in the very same place that he established his covenant with Abraham. God's people. Set apart for God's purposes. This city has great kingdom significance but also want you to notice that David did nothing to campaign for his right to be king did you see that no long campaign speeches no mudslinging commercials none of the things that we see today instead what happened is that the people of Judah those among whom he lived and the tribe from which he came the people who knew him best They came and appointed him as king in submission to God's will because they, along with most everybody else in Israel, knew of the proclamation through the prophet Samuel and the anointed anointment of David as the next king. But I want you to notice that he's only king over the house of Judah. One tribe, his own tribe, in the midst of all of Israel, But do you see that David's not complaining? He's not frustrated. He's not questioning, God, what are you doing? I was supposed to be king over all of Israel. Why just Judah? 
That's not what's happening. He's trusting in the Lord's timing. And, and we begin to see early on the evidence of his patience, the discernment of his wisdom. One of the parts of the narrative that I didn't share with you last week that was a part of the passage uh, was about some men from a place called Jabesh Gilead. Now, this city was of great significance because it was the first city that Saul defended when he was anointed king over Israel. So it's a very pro-Saul city. They are indebted to him because of the protection that Saul provided. Well, when the men from Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines did to Saul, you remember they cut his head off and then impaled his dead body on their city wall to humiliate him and the God in which he served. Well, when the men from Jabesh Gilead heard what had taken place, they risked their lives going under the cover of darkness into enemy territory. They took Saul's body from the wall and they brought it back home to give him a burial fit for a king. Very honorable men who did an honorable thing at the risk of their lives. Well, David learns about what took place in Jabesh Gilead. If you will, look at the end of verse 4 where I left off and it says, And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to these men of Jabesh Gilead and he said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And I also will show you this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. It's very subtle, but what happens here is very important. And really, his first decision as the anointed king over the house of Judah, David makes an alliance with a pro-Saul city. He simply invites them to be a part of his rule. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't force them. He doesn't deceive them in any way. He blesses them and says, what you've done is a good thing. And I intend to do good to you. I have been made king over the house of Judah. And he's inviting them to submit to his rule. This becomes a very strategic alliance as the story unfolds. Because at the very same time that this is happening, there is an appointment of a rival king that is going on as well. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 8. I mean chapter 2 verse 8. It says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over the Benjamin, and over all of Israel. So I want you to understand what's taking place here. Saul has been anointed king over the house of Judah, one tribe. And so all of Saul's sons were not killed in that battle. There apparently was one still alive. His name is Ishbosheth. I'm going to mess that up before it's over and say a bad word. So we're going to call him Bo. <laughs> okay? See, Bo has appointed, been appointed king over all of Israel. Instead of 
following with God's plan, Abner has stepped in to make a way for himself. Right off the bat, Israel is a divided kingdom on the verge of civil war. This is a tale of two kingdoms, all because of Abner's defiance to what he knows to be God's openly declared will. See, Abner's in control here, and he is fully aware, I assure you, he is fully aware of the prophecy of David being anointed as king by Samuel. Here is Abner, the commander of Saul's army, who saw firsthand God's protection of David in the midst of those wilderness years because it was Abner who was pursuing him. So he is fully aware of what he knows to be true, and yet he is opposing that truth for selfish gain. What follows is a two-year resistance led by Abner against God's kingdom plan. Now, if you've ever talked to anybody who says the Bible is boring, they have not read this section of Scripture that we will look at this morning, among many others, by the way. Because there's all kinds of craziness that are about to implode. Okay? There's so much going on, it's going to have all kinds of twists and turns. But I want you to notice something. In the midst of all the mayhem, David stays secure. You are going to see all kinds of maneuvering for power, for influence, for position. But you will not see that from David. You will see him stay the course and trust in the Lord to make a way. In many ways, the image I have in mind is a tug-of-war, okay? Think about a tug-of-war between two teams, if you will. And when you think about a tug-of-war and those teams grabbing a hold of that rope, who are the most important people on each of those two teams? The anchor, right? The one in the back. They're typically the strongest. They're, they're barking out orders. They're the ones who have the strength of the team in their hands. And so what's happening here is a tug-of-war between Abner, the commander of Saul's army, underneath the newly appointed king, Bo. And you have Joab on the other side, the commander of David's army, and they're pulling against each other in this kingdom tug of war. And what you're going to find out as we go along is that Bo is just a puppet king. It's Abner who's pulling the strings. And he's going to do everything he can to resist what he knows to be true. And to take control by force, by manipulation, by compromise. Instead of submitting to God's kingdom plan, he's going to try to have his way. And it'll come in these three ways. Force, manipulation, compromise. Let's look at the first one together. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now Abner is the anchor on the side of Bo's team. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out to Mahanaim, the, uh, to Gibeon, with the servants of Bo, the son of Saul. And Joab, the son of Zariah, the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side and uh, one on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, let, us, let the young man arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, let them arise. 
So they arose and went by, over by count. Twelve for Benjamin, twelve for Bo, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And, and each of them seized the opponent by the head and thrust the sword into his opponent's side so that they all fell down together. Therefore they called this place the place of swords, which is in Gibeah. And that day the battle was very severe. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. The first thing I want you to understand about what's happening here geographically is that uh, Abner uh, and the armies of Saul's son, Bo, have moved into an offensive position. They were located way east of the Jordan River. They've moved west across the Jordan River to literally at the doorstep of Hebron. And so when they move that close to the, the nation of Judah, you can imagine the only right thing to do was for Joab to move his men into a defensive position. The key thing here is that Abner is the aggressor. He's the one who's making the move to take the kingdom by force. And he has this idea at first. He says, let's decide this with a representative battle, 12 on 12. It's very similar to what we saw with David and Goliath, except that was one on one. Same principle applies. Winner takes all. Okay? But here's the problem. 12 on 12 went against each other and all 24 died. They each killed their opponent. And so 24 men lay dead. And so what, the only way to solve this now is to go into an all-out war. And so that's what happens. The armies of Saul's son, Bo, and the armies of David go into a clash. And it says that Abner and his men were soundly defeated. In fact, David's men literally have Abner on the run. If you read through the following passage, you're going to find that there was a, a man by the name of Asael who was from the tribe of Judah, who was apparently a little bit like Cade Gilbert, fast as lightning. Okay, So imagine Cade running after Abner, chasing him down. Cade, there's bad news to this story because Abner is a valiant warrior. And when when this runner gets close enough, he turns, takes his sword, and thrusts him through the side, and he dies. Sorry, Kate. It was an important event, but what happened in that war was that Abner and his men were soundly defeated. They were on the run because they were getting routed. And so Abner failed to take God's kingdom by force. But Abner's persistent. And so he's going to try a different tactic. This time he's going to move to manipulation. He's going to try to manipulate his way into a position of influence. Look at what he does in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 6. So turn over to chapter 3, verse 6. And it came about while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. He's maneuvering. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth, Bo, said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Bo and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father to his brothers, to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman? 
May God do so to Abner and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. He could no longer answer Abner a word because he was very afraid of him. Abner walks into Bo's palace and takes one of Saul's concubines for himself. Now, you and I read this and we're like, what's the big deal? I mean, obviously Bo's pretty upset because this is not a good thing. And it's important to understand this. In this culture, when you have a transfer of power, when one king dies, what would often happen is that when a man takes over the harem of the, the concubines of the previous king, what he's doing is assuming his right to succeed the former king in ruling in his place on that same throne. And here's why. Those concubines represent political alliances. They are wives from neighboring nations. And the offspring produced from these women prevent those neighboring nations from attacking their own bloodline. You see what's happening here? And so when somebody moves in to take over the harem, they're taking over the political alliances and making a move for the throne. And Bo knows that's what, knows that's what Abner's doing. But did you notice how Bo responds? Verse 11 says that he did not say a word because he was very afraid of Abner. Saul's son is a puppet king because Abner has manipulated his way into a position of power. And he will use that influence to try and manipulate his will into God's kingdom plan, and he'll do it through compromise. I want you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Who is in the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you, to bring all Israel over to you. Notice how he's presenting himself. He's speaking on behalf of all Israel. He's assuming the role of a king. Now look at verse 13. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. This is David. But I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. Abner's speaking on behalf of all Israel because Bo is silenced in fear. All of this is an effort for Abner to have a seat of influence at the table. It's like the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. That's what Abner's doing here, but he's a man of compromising integrity. So he's like a snake in the grass. There's something that he's up to. He's already proven that he can't be trusted. So David tests his loyalty a little bit. He says, okay, we'll talk about things, but when you come, you must bring Michael with you. Now remember, Michael was David's first wife. You remember that Saul took Michael from David and gave her to another man. So David's asking for her back. And unfortunately, this is really not a romantic rescue. This is very much a political alliance, just as I just described to you. The reason is because that marriage with Michael and any kids that they have together forms a connection between the house of David and the house of Saul. So David asked for Michael, 
to be returned to his house. So Abner scrambles. He scrambles to comply with David's request and in in an effort to get all of Israel to go along, to, to, to buy into his plan, look at what he says in verse 17. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner is quoting scripture to support his selfish plan. He does not believe a word of what he just said. Did you see what he just said? He says, we need to go along because God has promised to make David king and give him victory over all his enemies. We should do what God says. Oh, really? Then why did you just try to take the kingdom by force, by trying to kill David and all of his men? Why did you manipulate yourself into a place of power so that you could have a seat of influence at the table? If you are so willing to submit to God's plan, you sure have some awful compromising ways to go about it. And it all seems to be working out in his favor. He's convinced all of Israel to go along with his plan. So David prepares a feast, and guess what? (laughs) Abner has a seat at the table, just what he was maneuvering for. Peace is promised. Abner is dismissed to return home under the good favor of David as king. So, mission accomplished, right? So it seems. One of the people not invited to the feast was Joab, the commander of David's army, the commander who has been face-to-face with Abner himself, and he knows he is not a man of integrity, and he is furious. Furious that David would make an alliance with such an unworthy man. And so this is what he does. He sends messengers to Abner, who is now left to return back home. And those messengers say something to the effect of, by the way, David forgot to tell you something. Would you please return so he could communicate that very important message to you? Well, he's just been given political asylum. He's completely safe in David's kingdom, so he complies. Abner returns to the city of David, and when he does, Joab meets him in a dark alley and kills him, dead, on the spot. Well, here's the problem. We were on a path to peace, unifying a divided kingdom of Israel. And now that Abner has been unjustly killed, all of that is now at great risk, isn't it? So I want you to notice how David responds in chapter 3, beginning in verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the beard, the casket. Then they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. 
Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king had done pleased all the people. So all the people and all of Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. I believe David's grief was genuine, and not because Abner was a great guy. I believe his grief was genuine because he knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He submitted to that reality, hasn't he? But yet one of his most trusted men has taken vengeance into his own hands. It's sincere grief because of the unjust death that, Ab, that Joab took into his own hands. And, and it was that sincere grief in that unjust death that gained, uh, uh, that made the people pleased with David. They saw that David was innocent, that he wasn't complicit to what Joab did. And so they were pleased with him. It says in verse 37, so all the people and all of Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner to death. So David has earned the, the favor of the people because of the consistency of his integrity. Remember I told you, there's all this maneuvering going around. You don't see that from David. He's staying the course, consistent in his character, and he's earning the favor of the people to rule with righteousness. But all the maneuvering's not over with yet. It seems as if the tide is turning because now it says several times all the people were pleased with David. And so you and I are reading this thinking, great, finally, David's going to be king. Eh, not so quick. David has done no nothing to force the issue, but there are others who are trying to find a crack, a place where they can maneuver for selfish gain. And next, we are introduced to two men who are from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's important because that's the family of Saul, okay? That's important because Saul's son is now the king over the tribes of Israel other than Judah. And so these two men are cousins or distant cousins. They are related to Bo as king. But look at what they do. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5. So the sons of Ramon, the Barotite, and Rechab, Bana, departed and came to the house of Bo in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. Keep in mind, these are his relatives. These two men have snuck in. And they came in the middle of the house as if to get wheat. And they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Now when they came to the house... As he was lying on his bed, speaking of Bo, in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Bo to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Bo, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. None of that's true. Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day, on Saul and his descendants. They tried to convince David that they were doing him 
a favor. The men of Benjamin murdered their own cousin in cold blood, cutting off his head and then taking it to David, trying to present themselves as somebody who's done, the fa- done him a favor. And they attempt to use God's name to justify their sin. Verse 8 in the second part, it says, We have been instruments, essentially, of God's vengeance on your behalf. Notice they have blood on their hands, literally, and theology on their lips. So David explains, no, 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 no. God is my redeemer. He has protected me, and he will appoint me, and he does not need any help from you. And we learn in the verses that follow that these two men are put to death for their evil sin. Because God's kingdom is established by God's power in God's time. It's the only way. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And they anointed David as king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Did you see how David stayed faithful in the midst of all the compromise, all the maneuvering for power and influence? David waited on the Lord. He found that God's promises are certain no matter how much resistance there might have been. David is king over Israel because God has made a way, not David. So with that in mind, I want us to finish up this morning by considering how we comply with God's kingdom plan in our own lives. Because let me remind you of this. During his life and ministry, Jesus consistently announced that the kingdom of God has come. And yet, he did not rule from an earthly throne like everyone expected him to. Instead, he chose to reign, at least in the beginning, in the hearts of men. Not by force, not by coercion, not by manipulation, but through the cross. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. He rose to break the power of sin and death. His sacrifice set us free from our enemy. Jesus conquered our greatest enemy. But then what does he do? Does he force you to comply? Does he threaten you if you don't follow in suit? No. He just invites you. He invites you to submit to his rule through faith. He wants to win your heart through the demonstration of his love. Like David, he's consistent in his character. And his integrity is proven to be true. But sometimes, sometimes we can resist God's kingdom in some of the very same ways we see taking place in our passage. Sometimes we try to force God's kingdom plan to work out 
like we think it should. Like Abner, even when we know God's truth, we can work against what we know is right. We want to do God's will our way. Truth is, our selfish attempts to make God's kingdom plan comply with my preferences doesn't work any better than it did with Abner. As we talked about last week, there's that passage in Proverbs chapter 14 that says, what seems right in the eyes of men in the end leads to death. Resisting what we know to be true is a destructive path. I've seen people all throughout my time in the church, example after example after example of people who grew up in the church, who know what is true, and yet choose to do just the opposite. And let me give you an example of one of those people. Me. Me. There have been plenty of times in my life, and I suspect in yours too, where you have known what is right, you've known what is true, and you've chosen to do just the opposite. And it's hard because we are surrounded by socially acceptable compromise. But when we reject what is true, we need to be clear. We are resisting God's righteous rule over our lives. We are choosing to walk down a path that is filled with hurt and pain. Now, it may look like it's working out at first, but in the end, it will fail. Jesus is our king. And he calls us to seek his kingdom first. He invites us to trust in his promises no matter how much resistance we may get from the outside. We can be surrounded by compromise and yet still be faithful in our character because we put our trust in the Lord. And that's what he's calling us to. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him more than you trust yourself. There are times that we can try to make God's kingdom plan work by forcing our will into that plan. And other times, we, like Abner, can manipulate our way around God's rule in our life. Like Abner, we might use Scripture to justify those choices. After all, God wants me to be happy, right? Is it in the Bible? Somewhere? Maybe? No, that's not what it says. See, but that's what happens when we try to use God's promise of love to justify our sin. We use religious jargon, like, I prayed about it. No, no, you didn't. You told God what you were going to do, and then you asked for his blessing. That's what you did. I have a friend who has justified his divorce by making this claim. He said, it'll be better in the long run. He said, when it's all said and done, God's grace will make everything okay. No, you are manipulating God's word. God's word said, may we continue in sin that grace may increase. Very clearly, the answer is, may it never be. If you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. That's a promise. So don't use God's word to manipulate your will into his kingdom plan. 
There is no room for compromise. That sinful manipulation to justify your sin. Doing God's will, God's way. Otherwise, we're just manipulating to have our way. It can be by force, it can be by manipulation, or it can be by compromise. Where we try to build an alliance with partial compliance. Where outwardly, it looks like we're faithful servants. <laughs> like the men from the tribe of Benjamin. Look what we've done for you, David, how faithful we are. No, you've compromised. You've done what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord to move yourself into a position of influence. Outwardly, it appears to be a devoted servant. Inwardly, you're betraying what you know to be true. Maybe it's pornography, embezzlement, bitterness, where we accept the free gift of God's forgiveness like we just celebrated, but yet we refuse to give it to those around us. But Jesus tells us, Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. He says, lay aside your sin and every encumbrance that so easily entangles you. God calls his people to an uncompromising purity because our behavior is directly tied to his name. That's why holiness is important because our behavior is directly tied to God's name. We are a chosen race. We are a holy people. We have been set apart to come out of the darkness and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of that darkness. Not to go back and live in that darkness, but to come out of the darkness and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our king has come. And he has established his righteous rule in our hearts. And he wants to carry out that redemptive work for what it means to be a child of God. Because he promises that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He wants to carry out that redemptive work. But listen to me. We can prevent his progress by resisting his spirit. We can forfeit his blessings by taking control. So let me encourage you. Trust in him more than you trust yourselves. He's good. He's good. And there is goodness built into his design. If you'll just trust him enough to live within the boundaries of the design, then you'll reap all the goodness that he put into it. But it's all a matter of trust. So don't force, don't manipulate, don't compromise. He's invited you to submit to his righteous rule and put your trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being a righteous king who didn't come to threaten or to coerce or to manipulate, but to sacrifice. You gave your life as a demonstration of your love. You established your rule by conquering our greatest enemy, the enemy of sin and death. The cross is the way into your kingdom where we live under your righteous rule. 
And even though we know that has been established in part now, it's a little bit like David where it's just a piece of what is to come. But while we're here in Hebron, waiting for the complete fulfillment of that kingdom promise, would you help us to be a people who live without compromise, who are unwilling to manipulate, who don't force our will into your plan, but we surrender because we trust you. We trust you more than we trust ourselves because you're good and there's goodness built into your design. And we need to believe in our heart of hearts that everything that we long for most is found in you. Jesus, you are our king. And so may you rule and reign over your people and may we fulfill the calling that we've all been given to proclaim the excellencies of you, our king, who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Now may we go let our light shine before men so that they may see our good works and give glory to you, our Father, because our behavior is directly tied to your name. And may what we do proclaim the goodness of who you are. It's in the name of Jesus, our King and Savior, that we pray. Amen. Have a good day.